And as you do find that, please pray with me. Father in heaven, now we come to the scripture. I pray that you would grant us grace. Grace to hear, grace to understand, grace to receive, grace to believe, grace to trust in you and to walk with you, to hear these words of this prophet, our dear friend who has gone before us. And we pray that as his life has been transformed by truth, our lives would be transformed as well. Do that work in us, even this morning we pray, by this word. In Jesus' name, amen. Habakkuk in chapter 3, in verse 16. Hear the word of God. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me yet. I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. And then Habakkuk's final instruction to the choir master with strings, stringed instruments. Um, This particular passage is the conclusion to Habakkuk's confusion, really. It's the, the result of a transformed life. He didn't begin here. He ends here. He didn't begin here. He moves to this place. It's really for us a great sense of what it means to be a people of faith, what it means to live by faith. You remember Habakkuk's confusion. His confusion is with what he saw and what he understood to be true about God. If he didn't believe in God, he wouldn't be confused in the way that he was. He was confused because he knew the character of God, he knew the promises of God, and then he saw how Judah, the people of God, were living, how they were ignoring God, and he wondered, God, how can you allow this to happen? He saw how they were living unrighteously, ungodly lives. He saw that they were living uh, lives of violence, that is, doing harm to one another. He saw that there was hatred and strife. He saw that there was injustice. He saw that there was immorality. He saw all the sins that he assumed that God would discipline the people for and not let them live like that. And he wondered, God, why is it that you're not making for yourself a people to declare your praises? That's what you had promised. You had promised to destroy evil. You had promised even to send one who would do that. And yet, I see the people of Judah living in this way. God, how can you remain silent? How can you not act? And that was his difficulty, of course. We empathize with that. Because we see in the world in which we live, a world that doesn't seem to glorify God, a a world that doesn't seem to reflect him and his promises and his power. Yes, we live this side of the cross. We've seen that Jesus has come, but we wonder why aren't things better than uh, they are. We see the same kinds of things he saw. We see violence and injustice and poverty and pain, and we wonder how it is that God can allow a world like this to be. And it's confusing to us. God answered Habakkuk. 
And when he answered Habakkuk, it didn't really help Habakkuk, you remember. It helped him a bit. He said, well, he says, I'm not silent and I'm not inactive. In fact, what I'm doing is I'm bringing this godless, ruthless people called the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, to come. And they're going to, to discipline Judah. They're going to destroy Jerusalem. Uh, that's what they're going to do. That's who they are. They're coming. They don't know I'm behind this in any way, shape, or form, God would say. But, but they're coming. They think it's their deal and they're coming because this is just who they are. And they'll come through an amazing mystery of God's providence, here they come. And Habakkuk realizes, all right, I see the judgment of God, I see the discipline of God, that makes sense, but I don't see how God can use people who are ruthless and who are more unrighteous than even we are. How can that be? How can God be a party to this kind of thing? So Habakkuk sets himself to wait and to watch to wait and to watch for God. Again, this is a problem for Habakkuk because he believes in God and he knows his righteous character. He knows his holiness. He knows the promise that he's made. If he didn't believe in God, he could just simply say, well, perhaps there is something like God, but he really isn't God. He might be good, but he's not really sovereign, so he can't really be involved in this. Or perhaps he's the kind of God who just sort of made the world as it is and, and, and this is it and he's walked away and now it's up to us, so all right. But, but he doesn't believe that. He believes in a God of promise. He believes in a God of covenant. He believes in a God who intervenes. He, he believes in a God who cares and loves and is gracious and merciful and all of that. And so it's troubling to him. So he waits and he watches. He listens for God's response. God does in fact respond and he says to Habakkuk, there are people who are puffed up like the Babylonians and others who trust in themselves. And he says, don't worry. God says, I have decreed that their end will come to naught. That is, that all their works will go up in smoke eventually. It may appear as if they're powerful and as if they're glorious, but they will fall. For, God says, I'll share my glory with no other. Because a day is coming when the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. When you look at the sea, all you see is water. And he says, a day is going to come when you look upon the earth and all you'll know is my glory. That will be seen. That will be shown. Habakkuk, that is your hope. So from this moment forward, as you should have been living till now, if you weren't, I want you to know from now on, you as a righteous man, one who's been accepted by me, you're to live by faith. Not by what you see, but you're to live by faith. You're to live banking on, counting on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You're to trust me. Even if you don't see it, trust that a day will come when I will indeed be exalted, when my glory will be known upon the earth. Wait, trust, watch, live by faith. And then he caps that by saying... The Lord, God says, I, the Lord, is in his holy temple. Be still. Keep silence. Be awestruck by who I am. Now at that point you see this, we see this transformation in the prophet. And he comes to pray. Chapter 3, he begins 
to pray as we saw it last Sunday, verse 2. And he says, O Lord, I've heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. He begins to, to set his mind upon God and not upon the Babylonians. He begins to realize it's not about me. It's not even primarily about us. It's really about God and his work. So God, what I really want isn't for my life to be comfortable, even for me to understand all that's going on. But God, revive your work. Do, may your work live among us. That is really what's most important in all of this. He, he realized that God is active. God will work to fulfill all of his promises, all the way starting back with the promises of Genesis chapter uh, 3 that one will come and, and, and crush the head of the serpent and, and dispel and do away with evil to where he'll have for himself a people who will declare his praises that one from the seed of Abraham his father will bless all the nations of the earth he realizes all of that yes God will work And all those promises will be fulfilled. And so he rehearses in chapter 3, beginning with verse 3, as we saw last week through verse 15, God's acting in history. It's in poetic form. They're they're singing it, but, but it's real. It's true. And he takes them from the deliverance out of Egypt all the way through the Red Sea into Mount Sinai and the giving of the law and the great thunder and the great power of God and how then he takes them into the land, defeats the enemies and, and gives them this land. He says, yes, God has indeed been active in the salvation and for the salvation of his people. But then we get to verse 16 and as Habakkuk realizes what is to come because the Babylonians are coming, he says, I hear in my body trembles. He's a reasonable, rational man. And he knows when the Babylonians come, there's going to be great suffering. This is a ruthless, mean, godless people. They'll come and they'll surround Jerusalem and they'll cut it off. And the people will simply starve. And the Babylonians would be happy about that. Oh, they'll save some, but when they do, they'll just simply exile and they'll take them to another place, not allow them to live in Jerusalem. And so he realizes that the suffering that is to come is going to be unthinkable, unspeakable, unimaginable. And he fears, tremble, covers his whole body. And he begins to think about what's going to happen. Verse 17, he says, though the fig tree should not blossom. And by that he means... There won't be any figs. Now, we don't think that's a big deal, but he's saying the very staple of our lives will not be here. Figs won't be here. If there's no blossoms, we won't have any figs. And it isn't that we can just ship some in from California. There just simply aren't any. When there are no blossoms, there aren't any. He says there's going to be no fruit on the vines. Nothing. No fruit at all, nothing at all, no vegetation at all, nothing from the vines to eat at all. No olives, no olive oil, no olives, nothing. Our very economy is going down the tubes. And it isn't like it's going to just sort of fall. It's going to go to zero. There won't be any. There'll be no cattle in the stalls. None. There'll be no milk, there'll be no meat, there'll be no hides to cover us. There'll be nothing. 
There's no social services. There's no food for the hungry. There's no government assistance. There's no, there's no other nation that's going to come in and provide us help from their benevolence and their refugee funds and all of those sorts of things. We will simply be here and we will die. First the weak ones, the oldest, the youngest, and then eventually us all. That will happen. That is what is coming. He sees all of that and he trembles within. Now the question is, how is he going to respond to that? How is he going to live in the midst of that reality? This isn't something that isn't going to happen. This is something that God has decreed. God has said this is going to happen. He knows that this is what he's now facing. Whether it's next year or the year after that, Maybe it's going to be after his dead. Who knows? But his people are going to experience this. It would happen in the next 10 to 15 years. It would start happening, the very beginnings of it, pretty soon. Around this time, Babylonians would come. They would start their siege. How is he going to respond? I suppose sometimes we respond to this kind of news that the next year, the next 10 years, the rest of our lives are going to be filled with suffering and difficulty. And we could, we could accept that with some kind of resignation. That's sort of a coping mechanism by simply saying, well, let's just sort of make the best out of this. We can't really do anything about this. So here we are. We're stuck here. and We're stuck here together. So let's you know, make lemonade out of lemons. Let's do the best that we, we possibly can. Uh, the the trouble with that is over the long haul it creates often bitterness and anger because we begin to wonder why is this happening to us especially at the hands of the Babylonians they are worse than we are why is it that we're now experiencing this pain and this trouble when they're not actually they're prospering they're conquering us they're taking everything from us why is it that they can live like that and we can't and so after a while bitterness starts to happen you know that in your own life difficulty can come upon you and at first you can just sort of resign yourself to it and say well I'm just going to live with this I mean it'll be okay but then you look at other people who are just like you and frankly you think even a little worse in terms of their behavior, in terms of their spirituality, in terms of their walk with God. You think that there's some people you can find that you can be better than, and you look at their life and it looks wonderful. And you begin to wonder after a while, why is this happening to me? Why, why this? Resignation, just sort of resigning ourselves to it, doesn't really help for very long. We can try not to think about it. I don't know if you watch old movies and disaster happens there's always an older woman who takes a younger woman aside and they sit on the end of the bed and she pats her on the knee and she said let's just not try to think about this dear (laughs) and you know that works for a while but as long as it's still there it's sort of hard not to think about when it's right in front of you all the time you can try to give yourself a pep talk and try to be very courageous in the midst of this that we can really triumph over this Habakkuk really couldn't say that because God said the Babylonians are coming. They're going to destroy you. You're not going to win this one. A prophecy would come and say in 70 years you'll be restored. But for Habakkuk that's sort of like not all that helpful. In terms of his own existence. In terms of his own life. Pep talks that say you can do it are only good if you can do it. If you can't. No matter what the coach says at halftime, you still go out and lose. And so it really doesn't work in the midst of this. How would he respond 
we get the sense from this that he responded in faith, but not simply faith believing, but he responded by rejoicing. Notice verse 18, he said, I'll rejoice, I'll take joy. He responded in this sense of of trust, but this kind of trust that led him to rejoicing, even though he anticipated that everything that he thought was vital for life, everything that he needed for life, all of the all the food that he needed, all the fun that he needed, all the freedom that he needed, his family and friends and all of that, all these people that he could eventually see die, even himself, he said, in the midst of this yet, I'll take joy. I will rejoice. That's odd, isn't it? Or amazing. I wonder about us. I wonder about me. For Habakkuk, he had a number of those. Verse 17 starts out with the word though. So you get this sense that, that, that he's going to rejoice in God even though all these horrible things are going to happen. I began to make a list of those. Though should happen. Yet I'll rejoice. Though. Yet I'll rejoice in the Lord. Yet though. Like though. I lose my job. My business fails. My retirement is lost. Though I didn't get into law school or medical school. Though I'll never marry. Though I will never have children. Though I have to drop out of college for a time. I may never get back. Though I have cancer and will have to undergo painful treatment. Though the treatment will not work. Though I've experienced violence against me, robbery, a rape, even from one I trusted. Though my spouse will never quit drinking, though my spouse has been unfaithful and my marriage has ended, though my parents have divorced, though my child has died, though my spouse or my child or someone I love has not come to faith and perhaps never will. What are your those? What are the things that for you seem so vital to life that without them, how could you ever know any joy or rejoicing? This is a wonderful passage. It's quite poetic. We sang it. (laughs) Our first song has a nice little upbeat tune because it's talking about rejoicing. It was written by William Cooper, who was a man we've discussed before as a hymn writer who suffered severe depression in the context of his life for him, though he despaired of life itself, yet somehow he was able to rejoice in God and write these hymns. This is quite poetic. In fact, a couple of years ago, Karen and I commissioned a dear friend of ours, Sarah Andy Shack, to, uh, to, I don't know what you even call it, it's not a painting, calligraphy kind of thing. Anyway, if you come into our house, you'll see leaning up against our fireplace is this really big benediction. And we were trying to think about what to have Sarah to, 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 to she, she writes really nice. <laughs> Illuminated writing, that's what it's called. I knew it had an artistic name and a fancy name because she's a professional at this. We actually paid her. Um, but um, so we were thinking of all the things we could put there. And uh, I went through all the benedictions and all my favorite verses. And this one came up to me. And I, had to, uh, I have to honestly say that this is a scary passage of Scripture. 
I didn't know that I wanted to look at it every day up on my mantle. As I look at this benediction, the benediction that's up there now is now to him who is able to keep us from falling and to present us blameless before his glorious presence and that with great joy. Now, I like that. I think about the blamelessness and being presented. I don't think about the falling part. It's a wonderful benediction. I like to read that. I look at that every day and it informs my life. But this is scary, isn't it? This is, this is really faith. This is really trusting God. Even though everything that I feel, everything that I touch, everything that for me seems vital to my own life, whether it be in the safety of my own body, whether it be my own freedom, whether it be in the sustenance for me, whether it be friendship, whether it be aspirations, whether it be those very things that make me human, it seems, that I must have in order to really embrace life. Though all those go, and quite frankly, many of those will through the course of our lives. You know, I, you know, I don't mean to be a prophet of any kind of doom, but to be a speaker of reality. And the truth, the truth is we all suffer. And at any moment in time, some of us are suffering. And over the period of time, all of us will. If you live long enough, you will experience loss. You'll experience hurts and pain from the insignificant to the significant. And we know that. The question is, are we ready? In the midst of the trembling, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the suffering, to also have a sense, a deep inner sense of rejoicing. Habakkuk did. Something changed in this man from chapter 1 when he was questioning and really complaining against God. I would expect that if nothing happened to Habakkuk at the end of this, that he would have said, listen God, if that's the best you can do, forget it. God, if that's the best you can do, I'm going to go join the Babylonians. Because at least they're prospering. At least they're, they're, they're victorious. If, if the best you can promise me is no figs on the vine, no fruits, no olives, no animals in the stalls. You're going to take away my freedom, take away my friends. You're going to take all that away. If that's, the, if that's the best you can do, then forget it. But instead he said, I'll rejoice. How is it that he got to that place, even in the midst of these kind of those that took place? Well, first this, and of course... He began to cast his attention upon God. We've spoken of this always, every Sunday. That's what we do on Sundays. We focus our attention upon God. He began to do what the Old Testament saints spoke to us about living upon the word of God. As God says to Moses, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He began to live not on his sight. He began to live on not those tangible things that he thought he needed, not even the social and emotional things that he believed he needed. And as human beings bless our lives, he says, no, I'm going to begin to live, to to feed upon, to live upon the very word of God. Moses says to us, these words of God are not idle words to us, but in fact they are our very lives were to live by them. Joshua knew this. He said, we need to meditate day and night on the word of God. 
that will bring this victory of perseverance, this victory of continuing on in the face of God. He says we need this very word of God. In New Testament language, we would speak of it as renewing our minds. As the apostle speaks to us in Romans chapter 12, we need to renew our minds. He would say that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. But the Apostle Paul puts it like this most explicitly in 2 Corinthians in chapter 10. He begins verse 1, he says, I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I'm away, I beg of you, that when, my, when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. And that's what then begins Paul thinking. He says, I'm not walking according to the flesh that is according to our sinful nature. How is it that we can keep from walking according to our sinful nature? Here's how he puts it, verse 3. He says, though we walk in the flesh, that is we're human beings, we walk around. We're not waging war according to the flesh. He's saying there's a war that's going on, but it isn't a physical battle. You see, Habakkuk wasn't fighting a physical battle. He would. There would be physical side effects, byproducts, implications to no figs, no fruits, no olives, no animals. He would get, his people would get hungry. He'd have to fight that. There would be loneliness if people died. There would be emotional trauma and all of that but that wasn't the real battle there was something bigger even than that the apostle knows it he knew it in his own life though we walk around we don't we don't do battle against flat the flesh as he puts it he writes for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but have divine power to destroy strongholds we destroy arguments And every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. He says, there's a place where the battle is and it's in your mind. It's in your very heart. And what you have to do is take every thought that is contrary to the truth of God and you have to take it obedience, make it obedient to the truth of God. You have to change it. And so when people come against you in the midst of no figs, no fruit, no olives, no animals, when things are falling apart around you and everything you see vital, and they come to you as Job's wife came to Job and said, curse God and die, what good does he do you for you, for us, to be able to take those thoughts captive and say, no, that's not true. God is good. And God is wise. And God is powerful. And God is loving. Thus I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. See what's necessary during suffering is a good theology. What's necessary during times of difficulty is right thinking about God. We don't have that. We'll be crushed. He says no, no, no. Think rightly about God. 
And Habakkuk began to do that. He began to bring everything under this obedience to this right thinking about God. And so that's why in chapter 3, we read this last Sunday, not today, he rehearses all that God had been involved in in the salvation of his people and the deliverance of his people out of Egypt into the land of promise. He says, okay, I know God is good. I know God has a plan. I know God is for us. And not only that, Habakkuk begins to think about God. And notice how he puts it uh, here in verse uh, 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 18. He says, yet I will, re-, this is back in Habakkuk 3. He says, yes, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Two things quickly. One, the word Lord is capitalized. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the translator's way of telling us that that particular Hebrew word for God is the word Yahweh, which is the word, the the name that God gives himself when he says to Moses, go and deliver my people from Egypt. When Moses says, who shall I say has sent me? God says, tell them I am Yahweh. Tell them I am has sent you. Meaning, on the one hand, that I am God. That I'm self-dependent, I'm self-sustaining, I'm self-existing, I'm self-determining. I'm the one who determines all of history. And no one can thwart me. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. But not only that, he says, now this is the name that you, my people, are to know me by. So take refuge. Take comfort. In knowing that I am is your God. That no one can ultimately defeat you as you belong to me. And then he says, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Martin Luther once said, the Christian faith is a religion of personal pronouns. He says, it isn't about someone else at this point. It's about you. It's about me. It isn't simply that Jesus is the savior of sinners. He is. The question is, can you say he is my savior? Jesus didn't simply substitute himself for sinners. He did. The question is, can you say he substituted for me? He's my substitute. He is my savior my deliverer, my Lord. Habakkuk knew that, so he took comfort in all of this. And he knew then, regardless of what was to come, since he did then belong to God by faith, then notice verse 19. He would say, God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. He would know, Habakkuk would, that that God would be his strength. And when he said he makes my feet like the deer's, of course, he's speaking figuratively there. He wasn't going to look down and see he's had these feet that look like deer's feet. But, but, But he would know that as a deer could climb a difficult climb, that these deer could climb and places that you would look at and say nobody could climb that not even an animal nothing could make it up that cliff it's too steep it's too dangerous it's it's, it's too rocky no one could make it from here to there and yet God has made animals 
that astound us and can get from here to there. And these deer to which Habakkuk alludes were such animals like that. And he says, God's going to make us like that. The Babylonians are coming. How will we ever survive? The Babylonians are coming. How will God's promises ever be fulfilled? The Babylonians are coming. How are we going to sustain that suffering? The Babylonians are coming. How, how, can, how can life as we know it even go on at any point in history? And he says, well, because God will make our feet like the deer and he's going to get us to the high place of safety and security. As you walk through all of your those, all of your worst case scenarios, some of those worst case scenarios you've already experienced. You may have already lived through. How is it that you got to here? (laughs) It's because God in his mercy, in his wisdom, his love and his grace has given you feet that's enabled you to get from there to here and will enable you to get from here all the way to the point of safety, all the way to the top. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I've read this to you before, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a, a, a man who, a Lutheran minister in Germany during World War II, and he was arrested because of his faith. He was ultimately killed for participating in a plot to assassinate Hitler. And he wrote a poem about his stay while he was in prison and what people thought of him. And he had this, it was titled, Who Am I? Wrote it in 19, well, before his death, obviously, in the early 40s. He goes like this, he says, Who am I? They often tell me I stepped from my cell's confinement calmly, cheerfully, firmly, like a squire from his country house. Who am I? They often tell me I used to speak to my warders freely and friendly and clearly as though it were mine to command. Who am I? They also told me I bore the days of misfortune equally, smilingly, proudly, like one accustomed to win. That's what it looked like to everybody else. And he goes on. Am I then really all that other all that which other men tell of? Or am I only what I myself know of myself? Restless and longing and sick. Like a bird in a cage, struggling for breath as though hands were compressing my throat, yearning for colors, for flowers, for the voices of birds. Thirsting for words of kindness, for neighborliness, tossing in expectation of great events, powerlessly trembling for friends at an infinite distance, weary and empty at praying, at thinking, at making, faint and ready to say farewell to it all. In other words, he said, everybody thought things were going well because I was walking with the feet of deer, but inside, I didn't know that. Who am I? This or the other? Am I one person today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once? A hypocrite before others and before myself, a contemptibly woebegone weakling? Or is it something within me still like a beaten army fleeing in disorder from victory already achieved? Who am I? 
They mock me these lonely questions of of mine. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine. In other words, he knew he belonged to God. And so everything else taken away from him, his freedom, his friends, his ability to study and to write and to preach and be who God had called him to be, taken all that away, God was enabling him, strengthening him, enabling him to survive. And all simply because he knew that he belonged to God. Almost two years ago, as you know, many of you, a dear friend of mine died. Uh, He had been diagnosed about a year before that, not quite, with a brain tumor that ate away at his brain, literally. Even after surgery, it continued to go. And I would call him, lived in Denver, I would call him, sometimes I would visit him, especially towards the end, but I would call him sometimes once or twice a week, sometimes every day, sometimes more than once. And we would talk, and as the tumor ate away at his brain, he would say to me, there aren't any figs today. No fruit. I I can't really get it. I'd say, but, and he would say, God is my strength. And, and he would say, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. And there were days when he would be very frustrated because of what was going on in his brain and all that was going on in his body. And he would say, I feel like I'm going to blow up. And when I would visit him, you could just see it in his face, you could see it in his body, just the deep frustration. And I would say, are you frustrated with God? And he would look at me like I was from outer space. And he would say, how can I be frustrated with the God who has saved me? How can I be frustrated with the God of my salvation? How can I not rejoice in him? Because you see, there's something that we know as believers. Something that we know that's inherently true. We, we put words to it, but then we just go, I don't think anybody will get that. I don't, I don't think anybody will understand that. I'm not even sure I understand it, but, there, but there's something here that I, I get as a believer in Christ. Because I realize, and I believe we realize, and I knew Mike knew, that the most profound question in all of human history is not, why do we suffer? But the most profound question in all of human history is why did he suffer? Why did Jesus suffer? That's the perplexing question. Because you see, we know inherently 
that we deserve it. Whatever might come, whatever temporal disciplines, whatever temporal punishments might come in the context of our lives, no matter what difficulties may come, we know that we deserve worse than whatever might come, whatever we might suffer, whatever we might lose in the context of our lives. And so there's always this sense that he suffered. And that's the question, why? You would think that would be on the headlines every single day until people got it. What was the greatest injustice in all of the world? The greatest injustice in all of the world is that Christ suffered, not that we suffer. Mike knew that. He would say, this is just a light and momentary affliction. It isn't even worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed. And you know where he got that. In the Bible, he was taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. No matter what he saw, no matter what he felt, still there was this sense God was strengthening him. He was walking. It was painful. It was sad. But he was walking. And he wasn't frustrated with God. He wasn't angry with God because he knew that whatever he would experience, he deserved and more. And Christ had saved him. It was Luther, we've talked before, Martin Luther, who was so troubled by the words of Psalm 22, uttered on the lips of Jesus at the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he couldn't understand because Luther understood the profound question, Why did Christ suffer? And he didn't get it. He couldn't understand why the Father would forsake his sinless, perfectly obedient Son. And then it dawned on Luther that Jesus wasn't forsaken for Jesus' sins, but for the sins of sinners, for Luther's sins. Oh, that was it. For us, he suffered. As a prelude, Jesus was with his disciples, and he explained it to them like this by taking bread. He said, this is my body, my body. And it will be given, broken, given for you and in the same way he took our Lord Jesus the cup that was before him on that night of celebrating the deliverance, celebrating the salvation of the people of God. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this, he said, Jesus, in remembrance of me. The apostle says, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What do we proclaim? We proclaim that we know the answer to the most profound question in all of human history. Why did Christ suffer? The answer is, he suffered for the glory of his Father. He suffered because of the love that his Father had for the likes of us. He suffered for us that we might live he is the very God of our salvation.
and we're to trust and to rejoice in him even though let's pray Father in heaven I pray for me and for us that Christ his life, death, resurrection, ascension rule, promised return can inform our whole lives no matter what happens I pray that you would give us feet to walk though maybe even some of us are anticipating the next year, the next two, the next five years to be difficult relationally, financially, physically, emotionally, socially. Even though even though there are things in the past that come up, Father, that still bring great pain. I pray that you would enable us to receive from you strength, that you would enable us to rejoice, to know you, this one who is the very God of our salvation. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.